Please turn your Bibles to Galatians 6. Before we look at the text and read it again together, let's, let's remember what we talked about last week. This is the second part in our series on restoration in the body of Christ. We're looking at these first five verses in the sixth chapter of Galatians. And in these verses, Paul is addressing a problem. Remember that? The problem is, is what do we do when there are people who have been removed or are removed from the fellowship of the church? They're, they're not part of the body of Christ in the way that they should be a part of the body of Christ any longer. What do we do with those people? They're not walking in the Spirit. They're walking in the flesh. They've been separated. How do we respond to that? How do we restore them to the body of Christ? What does that look like? And Paul tells us that the answer in the context of Galatians is found in Christ. So in a church where there's lawlessness, where there's, where there's no desire to, to walk in godliness, you, you can't have restoration there because people aren't being confronted in sin. In a church where there's legalism, true restoration won't take place because there's going to be works that a person has to do in order to, to get back in. There'll, there'll never be the fullness of restoration. But in a church where there's freedom in Christ, that's where restoration can take place. And so Paul has been talking about the, the way in which we restore a brother to Christ, and not necessarily going through the process. But remember, we talked about he's, he was mentioning the participants in restoration. He talked about the goal of restoration, and he talked about the manner of restoration. That was what we looked at last week. And as we kind of looked at these, these areas, this was kind of the main idea we were looking at. Here's, here's just a reminder. Here's the main idea. As part of the church, as part of Christ's church, we are entrusted by God with the ministry of restoring one another to Christ and to his church. That's what all of us are called by God to participate in. And in a church where there's legalism, this is going to be very difficult because in a church where there's legalism, people aren't exalting Christ and aren't seeing that, that Christ is all sufficient for these things. And so they believe there, there's works I have to do, there's hoops I have to jump through. I'm, and before I extend grace or before I receive grace, I have to do this or this person has to do this. And Paul says, no, no, we're free. We're free from the flesh. We're free from legalistic demands. We have Christ. And Christ in his all-sufficient power can restore us to himself, and to relationships with other believers. And so again, we, we talk through how all of us have this ministry. We've been trusted by God with this ministry of restoring one another to Christ and his church. And here are the, the four principles we looked at last week. Uh, number one, we saw any person in the church can be overtaken by sin. Remember, we, we looked at that and talked about how this, this reality that we find ourselves in sometimes is that people very close to us are overtaken by sin. We recognize that as the reality of the Christian life. Any person can be overtaken by sin. Secondly, we saw that each of us, each of us should be prepared to help restore our brothers and sisters in Christ. This isn't uh, some situation where we can say, look, uh, you know what, this isn't really my deal. This is someone else's responsibility to get involved in this. No, all of us are entrusted by God with this ministry. All of us have the responsibility to help restore each other to the church, to one another, to Christ. And then the third principle that we looked at, the goal of restoration is full recovery of relationships as a believer turns to God and away from sin. 
away from the works of the flesh. And so the goal of restoration is full recovery. And then if you remember the last principle that we looked at was this. The way, the way in which we expose sin, the way in which we exhort one another to repentance must be gentle. Okay, and those are the first four principles that we looked at last week. So what we're going to do now is we're going to read the text together again. And then we're going to look at kind of the last principles, principles 5 through 9, and all of these kind of deal with the dangers of restoration, how there can be danger involved in this ministry to which God calls us. So if you would stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together. Here's what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 6. I'm going to begin, I'm going to begin a few verses earlier in in verse uh, 25 of chapter 5. Paul says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Then we begin in verse 1 of chapter 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing... He deceives himself, but let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. You may be seated. Father, we would ask that by your grace you would help us to understand these verses this morning and help us to engage in this ministry of restoration with grace, with gentleness, and with fear. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. 2007, a dairy farmer in Virginia was, was tragically killed when he inhaled methane gas unknowingly. He was in a confined space in a manure pit and he, and he breathed in these methane fumes and, and was killed. And, and then the tragedy was compounded. One of his co-workers, one of the, the workers that he had there on the dairy farm found him and in an attempt to rescue him, he also entered this enclosed area, also breathed in the methane fumes and, and died. And then, again, just the tragedy compounded as his, his wife and his daughters saw both men collapse. And also in an attempt to, to rescue them, they entered in that area, also breathed in the, this methane and, and died. Tragic tragic story from a few years ago, but, but sadly, sadly, I was, I was reading this week, this is not in some ways unusual. In fact, one report that came out recently said this, it said that 60%, 60% of deaths within confined spaces are, are the deaths of those who entered into that confined space to rescue someone else. In other words, the majority of people who die in, in these accidents are people who, who entered into these areas in an attempt to rescue other people. 2014, there was that, that story of the fertilizer plant in Texas that w- there was an explosion there, and 14 people died. 12 of the 14 people who died were first responders trying to rescue people who were injured. It's a dangerous thing to engage in ministry of, of restoration. It's a dangerous thing 
to attempt to rescue others. What's true in the world is true spiritually. As we engage in trying to rescue others, bringing people who are outside the fellowship of the body of Christ back into relationship with God and back into relationship with his people, we do so with with a godly fear, recognizing that what we're attempting to undertake is a dangerous, dangerous ministry. I know that if sin is powerful enough to overtake this person who, who needs restoring, my, my parent or my, my sibling, my coworker, my pastor, my, my Sunday school teacher, if, I know that if, if sin is powerful enough to overtake them, I know that I am not immune from its danger as well. And so as I engage in this ministry of restoration, I do so with, with a godly fear, recognizing how dangerous this ministry of restoration is. And so what I want to do as we think about this, this main idea that we've been entrusted by God with the ministry of restoring one another to Christ and his church, I, I want us to think through these last principles this morning that help highlight the, the danger of restoration. So we've looked at the first four principles last week. We looked at them here just a moment ago. Let's go into principle number five. Here's the fifth principle. Principle number five. As we engage in the ministry of restoration, we need to watch ourselves closely because it is extremely easy to fall into sin while helping others escape it. Here's how Paul ends verse 1. Look look at the text with me if you would. Paul says, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Now, what does Paul mean there? He says, watch yourself. It means to pay careful attention to, to, to monitor yourself closely, or, or you too will fall into temptation. Now, now, how can that be? How can it be if, if, I, if I'm in the church, I'm enjoying the joy of fellowship, and I'm enjoying the joy of relationship with other believers, and I see what my, my brother in Christ has done, and I see that the tragedy that his sin has brought on his life, how is it possible that I would be inclined to walk that same road. I mean, I see what sin has done to him. I see the, the sorrow that he feels as he's removed from fellowship. Why in the world would I be tempted to do exactly what he's done? Now, Paul gives us a couple thoughts here. Paul says, well, well f- watch yourself lest you two be tempted. I, I think the first thing that he's saying is it's possible that we might fall into the exact same sin that the person we're restoring has fallen into. Now, what, what could happen is this. As we confront our brother or as we talk with our brother about what he's been involved in, it, it's possible that as he describes the sin, we could find it to be enticing. Paul in Romans 7 talks about the law of sin. In other words, that there is a there's a benefit that sin brings. If, if we sin, there's often a, a momentary pleasure. There's a, a, a promise of happiness that sin delivers on in some ways at some times. And so as we hear our brother talking about this sin and talks about what he's fallen into, there can be a sense in which we to ourselves say, boy, that, that does sound kind of nice. We recognize as we engage in the ministry of restoration that we who have Uh, been by God's grace brought into fellowship with other believers who by God's grace are walking in the Spirit, we recognize that there's a continuing danger that we would walk in the flesh. That the lure of the old flesh, the lure of the the flesh that, remember we talked about what the flesh is, it's that part 
that is in opposition to God and his desires, even though we have been freed from that, we are no longer slaves to the flesh, we can still feel the, the pull to, to walk in the flesh, to live as we used to live. Listening to a, a podcast a, a few uh, months ago on This American Life, and they, in that show, were talking about another podcast. It was a podcast begun by, by two men. I, I never listened to it, but it, uh, I, I kind of listened to the the story about it. The, the men's names were Dave and Chris, and they were both men who had, for a period of their lives, just kind of given themselves to drugs and excess of, of uh, illegal drugs and substances. And uh, Dave had been uh, clean for a few months. Chris had been clean for over a year. And they, they started this podcast. Dave started the podcast. It's kind of just this project to keep his his mind on something besides the drugs. And so the, the podcast was about drug experiences, experiences that they had had while on drugs and experiences other people had had while on drugs. And uh, Dave and Chris kind of had different views for what the podcast should be trying to do. For Dave, Dave was kind of a, Dave was kind of a brash guy, kind of a little bit harsh in some ways. And Dave was just like, look, it's not about helping people get better. It's just a project for us to do to kind of tell funny stories, some sad stories. And this is just, that's what the purpose of the project is. Now, now, Chris, Chris was a uh, like a physically big guy, kind of kind of tough looking, but personality wise, he was extremely gentle. And, and Chris, Chris's view of the podcast was, you know, maybe we can help people with this. Maybe maybe this can kind of help people turn from from drugs and and help them in the process of getting clean. And and Dave's like, no, 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 that's not the purpose of the podcast. Anyway, they were kind of going back and forth on this. And Chris, as the podcast continued, Chris began to pursue a, a doctorate. He wanted to become a psychiatrist. He wanted to help other people. He began working at a facility to help people with their problems. And and the, the podcast lasted 143 episodes. And as you got into episode, um, I think the story said maybe episode 141, 142 out of a 143, it became obvious that there was kind of some tension maybe between Dave and Chris. And Chris was trying to take the the podcast one way maybe, and, and Dave wondered if, if Chris was really still interested in the podcast. And then the last episode came, episode 143. And the episode began with Dave announcing that, that Chris had died from an overdose. This guy who was a sweet man, who loved others, who desired other people to, to be free from the pull of drugs, who recognized the danger of that lifestyle and desperately wanted to help others. In the process of helping others, as often happens, he had fallen back into a period of, of weeks of just, just giving himself over and it had overdosed. Now, how tragic, right? Brothers and sisters, as we engage in the ministry of, re- of reconciliation, reconciliation, restoration, we do so recognizing, look, we are not immune from the pool of sin. We don't come to, to deal with people saying, look, thank goodness I've arrived because I've mastered sin and I in my strength can now help you. And Paul's saying, look, be careful, watch yourself as you engage in this ministry of restoring others, lest you too be, fall, be, be, uh, be, be tempted to fall. Paul's saying that. Perhaps Paul also means here, look, as, as you engage in the ministry of restoration, watch yourself, because it's possible that as you try to help someone who is sinning, you can sin even in your response to that person. 
So you, you, you love this person, you're trying to help them, you're trying to help them work through some things, and they don't respond well, and so you get angry. And it's not like a righteous anger, it's this, it's this self-righteous anger. And so as you've been trying to help someone who's sinning, you now sin in your response. Or maybe you sin as you become discouraged, as you take your eyes off of Christ. Paul's point is this, look, it's, it's possible as we engage in the ministry of reconciliation and restoration, we ourselves sin. It's a real possibility, a danger. We need to be mindful of who we are. People who are in continual need of God's grace because the pull of the flesh is still very much alive in each of us. Reminded of that, that scene in the movie Finding Nemo. Remember that, that movie Finding Nemo where the, the, uh, there are these sharks and these, these sharks have decided they're no longer going to eat fish. And they begin, they, the sharks gather together each week and they kind of try to keep each other accountable. And they, um, they, they have this, this, this saying that they say to one another. And they, they get together and they say, I am a nice shark, not a mindless eating machine. If I am to change this image, I must first change myself. Fish are friends, not food. Maybe you remember, though, in the movie, uh, each of the shark has, each of the sharks have brought a friend, a little fish that they bring with them, and uh, it it doesn't go well, right? You know, uh, it ends it ends in this feeding frenzy, right? These sharks trying to to eat these fish. Now, why is that? They're still sharks. They like fish. You and I, by God's grace, we've been, we've been freed from the flesh. We're no longer slaves to sin. And yet, as we engage in the ministry of restoration, we say, you know what? I understand that even though God has freed me from this, in and of myself, in and of my flesh, I'm going to be opposed to God and the things of God. So I better engage in this very carefully. As we engage in the ministry of restoration, we need to watch ourselves closely. I'm reminded of that of that story in Acts chapter 19. You remember that where Paul is in Ephesus and we read this. Luke writes in Acts chapter 19 that God, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and that evil spirits came out of them. And so some people see this happening. They see the things that God is doing through Paul and they say, well, you know, I want, to, I want a little bit of that action and in Acts 19, it describes these seven sons of a Jewish priest. And they, they begin to say, I, they are speaking to the evil spirits. They don't have a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. But they say, I adjure you by the, Paul, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And they're, they're trying to get these demons to come out of someone. And it says, the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them. So they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. There is a danger of falling as we help restore other people if we believe that this ministry is something we do on our own strength, on our own power. This is a ministry of God. And so we approach it carefully. We need to watch ourselves closely because it's extremely easy to fall into sin while helping others, trying to help others escape it. Here's the sixth principle, number six. Number six. As we engage in the ministry of restoration, 
as we engage in the ministry of restoration, we need to help carry our brother or sister's physical, emotional, and spiritual burdens. As we engage in the ministry of restoration, we need to help carry our brother or sister's physical, emotional, and spiritual burdens. Here's what Paul writes next in verse 2. He says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. There's a danger I'm going to fail to show concern and love for brothers and sisters in Christ as I engage in this ministry of restoration. That's what the the next danger is, a a, a callousness as I engage in this ministry. Notice there's two halves of this verse here, right? He says, bear one another's burdens. And that, that word burden describes a a weight that's too heavy for a person to carry alone. It's, 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 it's just this, this huge thing. He says, uh, bear those things. Uh, and those burdens can be not just burdens related to a person's spiritual problems, but they can be physical burdens as well. Sickness, illness, um, discouragement. It can be spiritual burdens. It can be all sorts of difficulties of living life, right? He says, bear one another's burdens. That's the first half of the verse. And then he says, and, and so you will fulfill the law of Christ. In other words, now you're going to fulfill what we talked about earlier in Galatians 5, your, your God-given obligation to, to love one another. Remember what Paul writes in Galatians 5? He says in verse 13, for you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. To to love, to, to place your faith in Jesus Christ, to be transformed by the gospel message and now have a a new heart, allows you to love God, allows you to love one another. And as you engage in loving God and loving others, you're fulfilling the law, the, the ultimate purpose behind the law. You're fulfilling now the law of Christ. Really, the law of Christ can be summed up as as love. Love God, love one another. So how do these two halves of this verse go together? What it means is this. My bearing your burdens is directly related to how I love you. And so if I'm going to truly love you, and truly have a desire to see you restored into relationship with other believers, to see you truly restored in relationship to God, I am going to be willing to bear, help you bear and carry your burdens in order to bring you back into fellowship with God and into fellowship with his believers because I love you. James would say in James chapter 2, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and so in other words, this person doesn't have what they need, and they come to you, here's this person who comes to you, they don't have clothes, they don't have food, and you say to them, hey, be warmed and filled. In other words, you don't give them anything, you just kind of give them this, this drivel of advice. Go in peace, be warmed and filled. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Now, here's here's the point as we think about this in the context of spiritual restoration. Spiritual failure, sin, rarely remains confined to the spiritual world. Spiritual sin and spiritual failures 
rarely remain confined to the spiritual world. What do we see happen when a person falls in sin, when a person falls and begins to make bad decisions, when a person begins to, to, to walk in the flesh and not walk in the spirit? What, what do we see? Those decisions don't only impact their spiritual world, they begin to impact their physical world as well. And if you and I say, okay, I'm going to engage in the ministry of restoration, but it's only going to be a spiritual ministry that I engage in without working to meet the physical and emotional burdens that other people have, we are not fulfilling our obligation to love each other, are we? When I was 14 or 15 years old, I've shared this this story before, the church I was, was in went through a really radical church split. And it was over the issue of, of, of biblical counseling. But at the time, it wasn't called biblical counseling. Maybe if you, some of you who were alive way back then uh, re- remember, you know, we used to use the word more often, nuthetic counseling. It was kind of described as nuthetic counseling. And nuthetic counseling, the word nuthetic comes from a biblical word, and the word means to, to confront, to, to admonish, to exhort. And it's, it's a good word. It means some good things. But the, the problem with biblical counseling during those years was, was often all that we did was nuthetic. All, all it was was confront. And so there was kind of this, this perception of nuthetic counseling that it was just about talking to people about their sins. So a person came to you with need, and you said, okay, here are the three areas you're sinning in. Let's, let's turn to Scripture and stop sinning in these areas. Okay. Now, the church I was when went through a split over this, this type of counseling, and over the next years of my high school, the, the senior pastor who stayed was very committed to biblical counseling and very grateful for his ministry of talking about, okay, here's how we take God's word and help people in their different problems and different issues. But, but the weakness of our understanding of counseling was it stayed very confined, right? person comes to me with needs. I'm going to say, here's, here's where the scripture addresses this. We're going to talk about sin. And now, did that, does confrontation of sin need to happen when a person is in sin? Absolutely, right? But where I think the biblical counseling movement has grown is in its understanding. Look, as, as a person has sin that needs to be addressed, that sin is affecting other areas of their life as well. And if I'm going to be a, a good biblical counselor and practice counseling in a biblical way, I'm going to deal with those other things as well. In fact, when I was in college, I was working at a Christian bookstore, and I was talking with a, a man who worked there. He was older than me. He was also... A, a counselor in another organization, and we began talking about different counseling, and he asked what my opinion was of different counseling, and I started talking about nuthetic counseling. He goes, oh, nuthetic counseling, that is terrible. He was, a, he was a very gentle guy, and so the, the fervor with which he expressed his concern about nuthetic counseling kind of, kind of took me aback. I was like, oh, well, I, just kidding. Um, no, I said, so well, what, what, what do you mean? He goes, well, you know, you guys who practice that type of counseling, you don't really care about the people. All you do is yell, yell at them about their sin. Now, he was wrong, but there's also some truth in what he was saying, right? What he had rightly put his his finger on is that sometimes those of us who are confronting sin are are failing to realize, look, this is, as I restore a person, there's there's a whole lot more to this restoration process than, than just talking with them about, hey, these are the three things you did wrong, and here's some verses to go with that. 
as I engage in this ministry of restoration, I recognize, man, this, this person's sin has had some cascading effects in their life. And because I love them, because I want to help bear their burdens, I'm going to, to personally take upon myself, and, and other Christians are going to take upon themselves, the, the weight of, of the cost that that sin has borne in the physical world. Does that make sense? As, as I think about, okay, this person's sin, and their, their sin didn't just stay spiritual. It affected their physical life. It affected their finances. It affected their family. It affected their health. As I, as I look at all these cascading effects of sin on their life, I, I step into that world and say, okay, I'm going to help you, help you right these things as much as I'm able to do. I'm going to take on myself that, that responsibility. I don't say, look, you dug your hole, now you deal with it. I say, okay, I, I love you, and I'm going, to, I'm going to engage in this ministry of restoration with you. If we see a person who, who jumps off a, a bridge in an attempt to end their life and, and lands in the, the river and we try to, to rescue them, we, we throw them a life preserver and we don't just begin shouting Bible verses with them. Hey, you know what? You need to think about life better. You need to deal with your problems better. No, we, we bring them out as much. We bring them out of the river. We, we clothe them. We get them warm. We, we begin to, to help them. We feed them. And we talk, hey, there's going to be time we talk about how to rightly understand life's problems how to rightly deal with, with pain and how to rightly think about the, the Christian life and suffering. But it's not while they're in the river, always. So many applications here, right? Let's not silo our lives, right? Let's not hold our, our resources tightly and say, okay, here's my stuff and I'm going to be involved a little bit here and a little bit here in, in the Christian life, in the church, and other people's lives. But, but let's maximize the glory the owner of our resources receives. We're a steward of the things that God has given us, and let's maximize his glory, not our own. Let's not immerse ourselves in the physical world to keep physical possessions for ourselves. Let's let our children and one another see us engage sacrificially in the church and in other people's lives and use our resources to bear the burdens to aid people in the process of restoration as God gives us those opportunities. Here's the seventh principle, principle number seven. As we engage in the ministry of restoration, we need to not become prideful. We need to be cautious of pride. Here's what Paul writes in verse 3. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Now, here's the scenario that I think Paul is describing I, I'm a person and I, I have confidence in myself. I, I look at my neighbor who needs restoration and I, I, feel, I feel superior to them. I consider myself worthy apart from contemplating who I am in Jesus Christ. I, I think that I'm something. I, I think that I'm a, above being where that person is. And now... Now, as, as I do that, he says, everyone thinks he is something, so I'm, I'm, I'm looking at myself and I'm, I'm reckoning myself something special, something, something special apart from what Christ has done in me. I'm seeing myself as, as something, and what happens? I, I'm forgetting this reality that I am nothing. I think that I'm something when I'm actuality nothing. Now, Paul isn't saying that a person doesn't have value as an image bearer. He's not saying that a person is, is just worthless garbage. He's saying, look, in the sense of being someone worthy of praise, apart from God's divine work in my life, I'm, I'm nothing. Apart from coming to, to faith in Jesus Christ by God's grace working within my heart, regenerating me, changing me, I, I, I'm nothing. 
So, if I think that I'm something, when in, and think I'm some, something superior, when in actuality I'm nothing, what does that mean? It means I'm, I'm deceived. I'm, I'm, I'm fooling myself. Instead of recognizing that I'm a, a finite part of a, a near-infinite universe in which Christ is the center, I, I'm imagining myself as the center of this universe, b- believing that I'm, I'm something that I'm not. It, it, it's delusional. It's dangerous. You imagine a, a person who came into our church and, and thought they were Abraham Lincoln, you know, walked around wearing the stovepipe hat and a beard and quoting the Gettysburg Address at, at awkward times. I mean, just we, we think, I mean, that's, that's the crazy person. We need to watch out for them. They're, they're delusional. The person who goes around the church thinking that they're something when they're not is delusional. They're, they're, they're dangerous to the body life. They're dangerous to themselves. They're, they're dangerous to others. The, the person who's delusional enough to think that they're something when they're nothing is, is dangerous. We're talking here about a person who has pride. And there's a danger of overconfidence in our own spirituality and our own ability. And uh, the, the, the effect upon this ministry of restoration is dangerous. In Galatians, the preaching of legalism had endangered the people to whom Paul is writing. Because they were beginning to think, hey, if I, if I follow the Jewish law, if I become circumcised, if I begin to observe the things that these teachers are calling me to do, if, if I do these things, I'm, I'm something. As opposed to recognizing the truth of the gospel, I am nothing. And only, only in response to receiving Jesus Christ as my Savior and, and God doing his transforming work in my life, only then can I have value and, and uh, be confident of my standing before God. The, the preaching of this legalism had endangered the Galatians by making them think that they could be found acceptable to God on their own. You know, I think, I think one of the greatest aids in our, in our striving for humility is a, a God-given, gracious gift of, of self-awareness, right? The more self-aware we are, the greater humility should be the result, right? The more we contemplate who we are and, and, our, and our great need for God, the, the greater our humility is going to be and the more equipped we're going to be to, to help others in restoring them. When we're, pri- when we're proud, what happens? When we're, we're proud, we become embittered to others. We consider them as enemies. We, we condemn them in harsh language. We condemn those with whom we disagree in politics or the church. That's, that's the mark of a prideful person. The humble person says, oh, Lord, I have been wrong in so many things. And even when I'm right, it's been God who's gracious graciously helped me, helped me see what is truth and overcoming my blinders. Uh, that, that's what pride does. Legalism causes me to say, look, um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm able to do this on my own. Humility says, look, legalism doesn't work. And it didn't work for me and it won't work for you. Humility causes us to rightly approach God. What must we do? We must pray for humility. Here's the eighth principle for us to think through. Principle number eight. As we engage in the ministry of restoration, we need to be careful to mind our own business, right? 
You say, well, hold on, Daniel. What, what do you mean? This whole passage has been about bearing one another's burdens. Now, now we need to mind our own business. Look, look at what Paul writes here. Let's think through this. Paul says in verse 4, But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and, and not in his neighbor. And, and what I believe that Paul is saying here is that there is a danger there's a danger of overstepping the areas where it's appropriate to confront. So, first of all, he says, the first part of the verse, he says what? Let us each, let, us, let each one test his own work. And that word, we're test, we're, we're looking carefully at it, we're, we're comparing it. And we're not comparing it to ourselves, we're comparing it to, to God's standard. Psalm 26, vindicate me, O Lord, for I've, I've walked in my integrity and I've trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes and I, I walk in your faithfulness. And so we don't, we don't test ourselves by, by looking just at ourselves and say, well, you know, compared to myself, I'm pretty good. Or I look at other people and say, well, compared to that guy, I'm doing pretty well. We test ourselves, we compare ourselves to God. Psalm 139, what does the psalmist write? The, the psalmist writes, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You, you know everything about me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. Even before a, a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. So, so God is the one who knows us perfectly. And so Paul says, look, what you need to do, you need to test your own work and then, he says, once you do that, not, not testing it by your own standard, but by God's standards, he says, and, and then what will happen? He says, then this person's reason, once he's tested himself in his own work, his reason, to be, his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Now, what does it mean, his, his reason to boast will be in himself alone? Does that mean God's calling us to this, this pride? Does that contradict what we just talked about with humility? No. What he's saying is, as we, as we think about the, the book of Galatians, he's constantly said that the works that we're producing are not our works, but they're the, the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, verse 16, walk by the Spirit. You won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Verse 18, you're led by the Spirit. You're not under the law. Verses 22 and 23 of, of Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Later on in chapter 6, he's going to say in verse 8, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And then what we see is that as we look at our works, we test them, Persons to test their works. And as we see something in them that's of value, and again, we're testing them not by our own standards, but by God's. As we look at work and see something of value, there's boasting. But when he says boasting in himself, he's not saying boasting in the work that you yourself have done, but you're boasting in what God has done through you as you're walking in the Spirit. So he says, each one should test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, so what God has done through me, and he says, and not in his neighbor. Now, what does he mean by not boasting in your neighbor? As we go through chapter 6, he's going to be describing the Judaizers who have boasted in the things they've forced the Galatians to do. 
So they're trying to get the Galatians to be circumcised. And the reason that they're doing that is so they can boast in what they cause them to do. They're trying to get them to obey the law. And the Judaizers are going to be able to say, look, look what, we, what, we, what we forced them to do. What Paul is saying here is, look, we should boast in what God has been doing through us. We shouldn't boast in what we have forced others to do. I believe that's what he's getting at here. Yes, we're to bear one another's burdens, but we're not to, we're not to, to engage in this, this, this harsh ministry of forcing others to do things that God wouldn't have them do. The, the accountability that Paul is talking about here is not to be some, some oppressive accountability where we're minding each other's business in a, in a way that's oppressive and, and unloving. Here's the last principle. Principle number nine. As we engage in the ministry of restoration, we need to remember... I need to remember that I will someday be called to give an account before God. He says in verse 5, for each will have to bear his own load. And you say, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute, Paul. Each will have to bear his own load. You begin the chapter by, by saying that we're to bear one another's burdens. What does it mean that we'll have to, verse 2 said, bear one another's burdens. Now you say each person has to bear his own load. What, what does that mean? Paul's using two different words here, right? The word that he described in verse 2 described this, this, this great weight that one person couldn't conceivably carry by themselves. The, the word that he's using here is the word that was used like for a soldier's backpack. It, it, it's a burden that, that could be borne alone. Some loads, some loads can't be borne for other people. There's coming a day where every person has to stand before God and give an account as, as our works are made manifest. And sometimes we go through life without an awareness that there's a future day coming where I'm going to be held accountable for the things that I'm, that I'm going to, to be done. They're going to be a, there's going to be a, a display. And if I'm mindful of that display, it affects the work, the work that I do now. When I was in seventh grade, I was, I was in a math class, and the teacher told the class, she said, okay, uh, class, I, I want to come up with a motto for our class. And I want each of you to design a poster that kind of has a, a class motto, something inspirational that we can look at it the whole year. And it's, it's voluntary, but I'd like you guys to do it. And I said, that is never happening. And uh, then she said, and it's for extra credit. And I thought, well, now let's talk about this. So, so I went home and I thought, you know, I, I, am, I am not, first of all, I don't enjoy inspirational quotes. I think they're silly. And then secondly, I am terrible at art. So, but I do like extra credit. So, I, I, and I, I came up with the cheesiest, the cheesiest inspirational quote I could possibly imagine. Um, something like, we believe that every day has its darkest hour, but that that hour is followed by a new dawn. Like, seriously, that's, that's what I wrote. And I drew a sun coming up over the water in bright rays. And then... I brought it in, and I was the only student to turn in a poster. <laughs> and the teacher looked at the poster, and she's like, okay, this is our class motto. <laughs> and she hung that thing on the wall for the entire school year. And it was just filled me with shame every time... I saw it, right? How terrible, right? How terrible. 
But as we engage in the ministry of restoration, we recognize, look, um, what I'm doing, the ministry that I'm engaged in and the life that that I'm living here, someday God's going to call me to give an account. This is going to get displayed, and I I don't want to have shame as I think about this, this display in the future. I, I, want, I want God to be glorified. I want people to look at what the ministry that I've engaged. I want, I want people to look at the love that I've had for others and see God displayed in that. And I want this, this ministry that I've had in the lives of other people to bring honor and glory to God forever and ever and ever. The ancient Greek mind, uh, Hades, was this place where Souls were, were separated forever from the, the land of the living. There's this, this line in, in Homer that talks about them having no mental powers or strength, and they were no more than insubstantial shadows. The, the shadows there cared about the things of the living, but they, they couldn't interact with, with power any longer. There was, there, was no, there was no possibility of restoration. That's not the picture that God gives us. By God's grace, those of, us, those of us who are outside don't have to stay outside forever. We're not insubstantial shadows that can't be welcomed back into the body life. God continues to offer his grace, not through the law, not through our own works, not through our own efforts, but through the beauty of Jesus Christ. And each of us, by God's grace, are to engage in this ministry of restoration, calling one another to come back to the body and enjoy the fullness of life in the Father's house. Let's pray. Father, we do pray your grace upon us as we think about the ministry of restoration. We pray that we would be fervent in calling others to come back to you. And yet, Father, at the same time, we would recognize the danger inherent on each of our souls as we engage in this ministry, the, the dangerous ministry this is as we are tempted in sin as we call others out of sin. Keep us, keep us faithful to you, the grace of your son Jesus, and we pray this in his name. Amen.